Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. We've got you for an hour of science now, and we have a huge show ahead. It's very exciting, actually. We will be talking about gravity waves with our first guest from Monash University, and we will be talking about clean air. It's the big topic on everyone's, um, well, noses at the moment. And uh, with our second guest, uh, a repeat offender, actually, for Triple R. Uh, and that will be coming up just after, I don't know, 11.30 or so. Uh, in the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You, you know, when I heard wave for a minute there, I was thinking of in a stadium when you go, you, I heard gravity wave, and I thought, yes, you raise your hands in the air as you go around. But uh, <laughs> different sort a little of different. Yeah, uh, these ones are a little bit harder to see. Yes, I, 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 I'm looking forward to that. I have lots of questions. Yeah. Um, no, I think uh, it's, it's going to be one of those days where we um, – where we, we dive into some, some pretty heavy areas of science, actually. But I know both of these guests, and I'm convinced that we will do it in a way that people enjoy. Oh, cool. Yeah. You know, speaking of seeing things, uh, diving in and seeing really deep things, I mean, I, 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 I think this is the first time I've been on the show since James Webb released, the James Webb's telescope released their oh, first yeah? set of images. Now, I know that's been covered, but just this week, I can't get over like the the full images have been released, but scientists are now starting to data mine. And you know, mm. I, one title I, I saw this it came out yesterday or on the twenty fifth. James Webb isn't meant to do it, but in comparing one part of the sky to Hubble, they found a supernova. Yep. Just because, hey, that you know what that that, that wasn't, wasn't there before. in the yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And 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 while it's not that's not what James Webb is meant to do because those are dynamic things and it's meant to look deep, far away into very mm. old galaxies. It was just like wow, the amount of different things they're able to do and i think they found what one galaxy this week they reported it was 235 i'm going to say billion or million years million years from when they think the big bang happened like it was a very old galaxy yeah so big uh, bang is about what 13.7 billion years yeah. and this is just a few hundreds of millions of years after that which is yeah which yeah. is amazing stuff because that's early stuff early formation yeah. stuff and i think um when you look at some of this data one of the one of the things that amazes me is, of course, we can all access it. So you have yeah. all these scientists around the world who are suddenly like, "Ooh, <laughs> let me just download that sequence of images and see what I can find." And and then they, you know, whack on their supercomputers and do their thing, and it just it just brings out some amazing stuff. So I think we're look, we're in the early days. You know, we're going to see a lot more really cool stuff, but yeah. um, certainly it'll be exciting. We should uh, jump in. Yeah. Well, that's, that's news, of course, but uh, yeah. this is the news segment. What have you got for us? So I, I found this I, – I was just blown away by this. This is a really cool article. Pollination. We know what happens with bugs. We know what happens with – animals can do it, wind and water, and mm. we think of pollinating plants. But as it turns out, you there have now been two examples of pollination occurring in the sea. Oh. So the first one was discovered in, I think, 2015, and it was a seagrass – and this is a, but the, there's a long-held belief that pollination doesn't happen in the sea. You got water to move things around, and why would you need pollinators like little bugs or things? And plus, we don't have birds in the sea, and there's a lot of differences because it's underwater. And so, this study in 2015 in seagrass motivated people to look a little further. And so, there was a study that came out this week in Science on pollination of red algae, a particular mm. type of red seaweed where they it's analogous to pollination now it <clears throat> algae is technically not a plant and this algae or seaweed is a billion years old in evolution terms so it was around well before plants mm. um and it, it 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 pollinates a little different so it, it's equivalent of pollen normally has a flagella which helps it get around but this particular seaweed doesn't have flagella on its pollen so it's dependent on currents to get the pollen, the effectively, it's it's a gametes. It's it's kind of like pollen to get from the male to the female part of the seaweed or algae. But instead, this little isopod crustacean, so you could think krill, just tiny krill. Yep. Sorry, in, in <clears throat> my mind, I'm thinking back to uh, one of the Disney movies where they go, oh, look, krill. But um, this krill actually gets coated in effectively that algae's pollen and moves it around and pollinates the algae similar to the way you might think a bee might. 
but underwater. And you kind of mm. go, okay, that it's not expected. In fact, the first they noticed this little isopod was hanging around, and they, they tested it a couple different ways, and they tagged the pollen and, and saw when the krill was there, it was actually much more pollinated. Um, but it, even the idea of this happening, the isopod's been around for 300 million years, so the algae must have done something else for the other 600 million and change. Um, but the idea of having an animal do that is just unheard of in the sea. And, and it's pretty crazy because they're looking at this going, well, current can help as well, but it's actually a little bit deeper of a relationship. So, you know, I hear symbiosis, but a lot of times in the literature, when it's beneficial to both species, it's called mutualism. Mm. And in this case, I'm like, all right, well, clearly the algae is getting something out of this. Yeah. What's the but krill get? What, what does the little krill get? Well, as it turns out, there's another little competing surface algae that grows on the red seaweed. The red seaweed doesn't particularly love to have it there because it covers the – and the krill loves to eat it. So because mm. they hang around, they get first shot at this other little food source, and then they help the, the large red algae or red seaweed actually procreate. And this starts to change our perceptions of ecologically how that could work and the implications of when did pollination evolve? Because if we have algae doing things that predated plants, then perhaps where we first saw pollinators starting to work, did that it's, it's opening up the question to motivate observation. Did it start in the sea and then transfer to land, or did it start mm. in land, or did it do both? Because evolution can do things yeah, in yeah. parallel. And we, we do like to think that a lot of things started in the sea. Yeah. As much as we don't want to admit it. You know, we, we did all crawl out at some stage. Um, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's super cool stuff. I remember I was saying to you just before we started the uh, – I saw that story, and it was uh, it, it was just luck that we didn't both yeah. bring in the exact same story because we're both big, big fans of bees and, and pollinating and uh, – it's it's cool to think about that. I just I always have these images of the little krill trying to swim against the tide, you know. And, <laughs> but I've got to get to that piece of algae. Um, but no, yeah, cool stuff. Um, now I was looking at something uh, this morning which I, I was fascinated by, and it's this idea. You know, we're talking more and more at the moment about um, humans getting to the moon and eventually getting to Mars. And I think most listeners will, even if they haven't seen the film. They'll remember that scene where, you know, essentially Matt Damon is growing potatoes in his own shit. Yeah. I, I, Sorry about the swear word, kids, but that, look, you know, like, that's that's essentially what's going on. We were growing potatoes at home last year. We even had the discussion. Is, is, is <laughs> the store-bought fertilizer yeah, okay, yeah. or should we? <laughs> should we? Should we? No, uh, let's not do it. Uh, we've got to eat it at some stage. <laughs> there could be some remnants that worries me. But anyway, we, we've all seen that. We know that that was the idea that, you know, something was required in addition to the Martian soil to make this happen. And there's some researchers at the moment over at the University of North Dakota doing some really interesting work in this. And this is um, led by Sherry fisher by and essentially what they're looking at is, okay, what about asteroid soil? So what about the, the kind of rock that oh. you get if you crush up asteroids? And a lot of them are, have sort of loose materials on the surface. They're not all, you know, big chunks of iron. Yeah. All sorts of materials you find in various parts of the solar system. And they were saying, well, okay, how would we go about growing some simple stuff, some sim simple vegetables? And so she grabbed one of her students and said, you know, go out there and grow me some plants in this asteroid soil or you know, they don't have the asteroids also yeah, they that simulate kind of it carbonish, yeah, yeah, so not, not great material yeah. and you know the bottom line is that that sort of rock the one of the issues with it is it kind of it clumps together very hard so you don't get yeah. the the water water filtering through it doesn't work and so plants won't grow in it you know it's like if you i guess if you had thick clay soil here you know it yeah. can be <clears throat> you know holds water but also holds it out you know so problematic so what they did was they, they did something new, and um, they looked at if they took some peat moss, you know, back to mosses, put some oh, peat yeah. moss, you know, which you can buy at your local hardware store. Yeah. I actually Googled it this morning because I thought, can I buy this? Can I just go and get it? And you can, or you can buy it at your local nursery. It's really good for uh, ferns, mm -hmm. if you're growing ferns, which people who you know follow me on Twitter will know I do. <laughs> um, but anyway, they, they put this through the simulated asteroid soil, and then they grabbed some simple plants that we know can grow, grow in unusual conditions. So they took lettuce, chili peppers, and pink radishes. Why do we know they can grow in weird conditions? Because they've grown them on the International Space Station. Oh, So if you're going to pick right, some so. stuff and think what, you know, what kind of plants will they use, they've picked plants that they've grown on the, on the, on the ISS. And lo and behold, they grew in this simulated asteroid soil with the peat moss. Now, now what they did was they did three experiments. They they did somewhere it was just the just the soil, 
somewhere it was just the Pete Moss, obviously, yeah. gangbusters, um, and somewhere it was a bit of both. And the bit of both actually was a really good combination. It worked well because the soil held things together. The Pete Moss allowed for moisture and, and nutrients to come through. And overall, um, a, a very good outcome. So I think this is one of those things where you think, okay, wh- what, do we, what do we take when we go on these adventures to, to other parts of our solar system? Um, you might need to take a bag of peat moss um, yeah. and some seeds, uh, and that might get you across the line. So you know, it's, a, it's a good experiment, I think a, a good um, addition to our knowledge of you know, humans surviving um, protracted periods, especially on Mars, is going to be tough. And if you think of the the single biggest issue, maybe uh, top two anyway, um, with regards to any sort of transport to Mars, it's how much mass you bring with you. And you don't want to bring a lot. So you're not going to be able to bring enough food for people to live for years. You're going to have to take care of that either en route or when you're there or have, have multiple sort of rocketry trips delivering it. Either way, that's going to be hard. So the more you can do on site, the better off we will be. So yeah. Yeah. it'd be interesting to see the next step there if they uh, started to play with the atmospheric concentration. Like, could they bump the CO two up? Yeah. If you're making your atmosphere in the growing area, you don't have to put as much oxygen in. Yeah. So there's a lot of things you can manipulate too. Yeah. There's all sorts of fun things going on. Now, I should say uh, later in the show we'll be talking to uh, Professor Robin Schofield, who's next expert in aerosols. And Robin has put a CO2 sensor in the studio here with me. And if I sound distracted, folks, it's because I'm watching it constantly to see how bad the air gets in, in our studio. Um, I'm thankful to say, actually, it hasn't changed much since uh, you and I have been blowing hot air for the first yeah, 15 minutes, right? Yeah, but if, if it does go up by the end of the show, I'll know why. Gosh, we always feel tired at the end tired of the show. Tired and headache. We thought it was the energy, but <laughs> Maybe it's the CO2. <laughs> it's the CO2. Uh, folks, we're going to take a break for some music, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about gravity waves with Associate Professor Duncan Galloway from Monash University. You're listening to Triple R. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Associate Professor Duncan Helloway from the School of Physics and Astronomy. Did I say Helloway? Galloway from the School of Physics and Astronomy at Monash University. Welcome back, Duncan. I think it's been about 15 years, but you have been in here before. Something like that, yeah. It's been, a, it's been quite a while. And some stuff has happened, I think it's fair to say, in the area of gravity wave detection since we last spoke definitely um now so was it it was 2015 wasn't it the first detection is that right that's right so LIGO had been turned on or even not even quite started its first observing official observing period yep uh, and they had this this incredible signal of two black holes colliding with each yeah. other i think that's phenomenal and that was um what about 13 billion years in in the making or uh it's yeah i think a, uh, a, a thousand uh, megaparsecs away, so, yeah. so way out in the in the distant universe, and and consequently a long time ago. Yeah. Um. And but you know it was it was really exciting as well because it was this pair of uh you know sort of thirty solar mass black holes, mm-hmm. and we had no idea that objects like that even existed because right. we have no you know no examples locally. Yeah. And so this was not only uh, a great technical triumph, but also a discovery of a whole new class of sources. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure if we can describe this without a, a diagram, but when, when two objects do collide like that, why do we get a gravitational wave or like a, I guess, a distortion in the universe in which we sit? So the, the gravitational waves are, are happening because of the gravity, obviously. Um, and, you know, each of those black holes, and in, in fact any object with mass, distorts what we call space-time. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the combined, um, you know, space and time that, that comes out of Einstein's general theory of relativity. Mm. So the, there's nothing sort of special about the black holes doing this. The Earth and the Sun, any object will, will you know, distort that, that space-time. But the black holes are, are very massive, very compact, and they're also orbiting each other. And so they produce gravitational waves at a frequency that, that corresponds to that orbital period. Right, right. right. And as, as you know, energy has to be conserved in the universe. So if you're producing some kind of wave, that energy has to come from somewhere. And where it comes from is the orbit of the black holes. And so that orbit will shrink with time. 
Because because some of the energy is being spat out exactly of, in gravitational the, yeah, waves. So yeah. so we get the waves. That's the well, you know, we don't see those ones. They're little ripples, I suppose, at that point. Initially, initially, yeah. yeah. But yeah. when they get really and, and as they as they're going, they're taking some of the energy from that orbital interaction between the two black holes, and then exactly, and then presumably when they get too close, bang. Yeah, and yep. and you know, once the black holes get to the point where they're event horizons are basically touching and this is the region where right. we start to sort of lose information about you know what's what's happening uh, there and they'll basically just merge and form a, a big uh, black hole it's sort of wobbly at first because it's yep. you know it's having gone through this uh, this terrific collision um, and the other the other thing that happens is you get you get two two black holes um, and you add the mass but it doesn't add up. The equation right. doesn't balance because this enormous amount of energy goes out and, and that comes from the mass of the black holes. Mm. So you lose, I think, the, the initial event that LIGO detected. Uh, three, three times the mass of our sun went missing. Right. And, the, and that amount yeah. of, you know, that's the amount of energy that came out, which is a, you know, it's cataclysmic amount of energy. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I suppose one of the things that I, I often think about is we're sitting here on Earth, we're a very long way away, you know, in some cases billions of light years away. So this is billions of years in the past. And this ripple has gone out in the universe and finally come past us. But it's not, it's not like a lighthouse. You know, it's, it's, like a, you know, it's like an explosion. And so that ripple has gone out in every direction in three dimensions, not just two dimensions, but three dimensions. And if you think about that, like, it was such a powerful initial event that it was able to travel for, for billions of light years, you know, not billions of kilometres, billions of light years in every direction, and we were still able to detect it. Yeah, it's, it's you know, <laughs> phenomenal. But, you know, this is pretty, uh, this is pretty ordinary for, the, for people who study gravitational waves. And I, I remember going to a talk a few years ago, and a guy was talking about, uh, I think it was supermassive black holes like, mm. like you find at the centre of galaxies. And if you can get pairs of those, then they'll produce gravitational waves, right. just like smaller black holes. And I put up my hand and I said, oh, you know, how many, how many of these can you detect, you know, in the universe, like out to how far? And he just said, all of them. Right. You know, so, so that, yeah. you know, these, these waves, I mean, this is one of the strengths of the <laughs> waves. They penetrate the entire universe. And if yep. you've got a good enough detector, which we now do, yeah. uh, you can detect them from, from, you know, cosmic distances. It's, it's yeah. really amazing. Yeah. Now, LIGO's on, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but my recollection is it's on a bit of a break at the moment. They're doing upgrade? Is That's that, right. Yep. Is that right? So what, what will change when it comes back online? I think it's, is it next year? Uh, so the, I think the current uh, forecast is, is early next year. Right. Um, and so, so basically what they're doing, they, they, they had initial LIGO, which was, you know, result in the first detection in 2015. And they're going through this period of, of basically upgrades where they're improving their sensitivity. Mm. So they want to be able to detect fainter and fainter objects and so, you know, sort of probe more of the, more of the volume of the universe. Yep. Um, so this, this gap that we're in at the moment is, is just one of those, um, you know, one of those upgrade phases. Yep. Uh, and they do things like, you know, this is a, it's a big, what we call an interferometer, which has very powerful lasers, and so they want to, you know, have increase the laser power and improve mm. the, um, you know, the the rejection of seismic noise and lots right. and lots of little technical uh, improvements. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. Now, in terms of um, in terms of the the detection itself, so one of these waves or these ripples in space time comes past the detector and it gives you a little blip, which doesn't look overly impressive on the screen, but you know, for uh, for anyone studying this, I disagree. Mind, mind blowing. <laughs> um, so at that point, how do we know where it came from? So, um, in you know, in contrast to normal telescopes, you can you can think of uh, these interferometric <clears throat> detectors, the gravitational wave detectors, as kind of like microphones right. and kind of appropriate analogy since we're here on radio. Um, but so the um, the information that you get about the the source is is very poor, um, mm. and so you know sort of roughly where it came from on the sky, but only very only very roughly. Um, mm. So. If we want to learn more about those objects, we really need to home in on, you know, exactly where they occurred. Yeah, that's interesting. So we're going to come to that in a second. Before we do, um, what I wanted to sort of get your feelings on is I've been describing this for a while now as kind of the third version of astronomy or the third type of astronomy because we started off, you know, Galileo and so forth with optical astronomy. So this is the light that our eyes can see. It's pretty simple stuff. It's what the Hubble telescope gives us, you know, the light yep. we can see. Then we, we moved into this area of radio astronomy and, you know, we've had Jocelyn Bell, you know, the person who discovered the, the, the pulsar on this show. You know, radio astronomy is a completely different area of the electromagnetic spectrum that we can't see but tells us a lot about the universe. Then all of a sudden we have this 
what I think of as a third type of astronomy, which is gravitational wave astronomy. And we, now, the differences there are quite profound, aren't they? Because these gravity waves just travel, correct me if I'm wrong, at the speed of light, and they go through everything unattenuated. Is that right? Yep, that, that's uh, as far as we can tell. So, the, I mean, the event, uh, well, uh, maybe we're going to talk about this a bit later, but the, the other big event that we had, which was two neutron stars colliding, mm. which we, we detected first in 2017, um, that allowed us the first test ever of the, the comparable speed of gravity and electromagnetic radiation. Right. And in that case, it was gamma rays. And, right. you know, that object, which was 40 megaparsecs away, so, you know... Fair way. Well, <laughs> We're pretty close. Quite, quite on, you, close, you, you, close you, by gravitational yep. wave standards, perhaps. But anyways, it was, uh, you know, the, the, the two signals arrived within two seconds of each other. Wow. So that's... Yeah. The, the speeds are the same to within one part of in, in 10 to the 15. Wow. Okay, so it's, yeah. they're really, you know, they're really pretty yeah. com- comparable. So that's a, yeah. a, a very stringent test of, of, of the speed of these gravitational waves. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And so, you know, we know that, and, and, and we were just talking earlier about the James Webb Telescope, and some of the images in there show some of the amazing gravitational distortions, some of the lensing effects that you see. And, you know, in some cases you're seeing the, ga- the same galaxy multiple times. In other cases they're just smeared out, all because of the fact that the light coming to us takes a variety of paths and they're all affected, but gravitational waves just come straight at us. You know, there's no distortion. So if I'm, and this is where your work comes in, I know, where yep. I'm, I'm detecting gravitational wave, and then I want to say that every major telescope in the world point in this direction, but I don't know where that is. I mean, how do we how do we get to that point where we can start directing all of our other resources so we can see these these amazing events going on? Yep. So so the LIGO um, uh, collaboration they have a, a very sophisticated set of software that analyzes the the signals that come from not not just one of the instruments, but there's multiple instruments. Mm. So if you think about, um, you know, tri- triangulation of a signal, so they can use the, the, the differences in the signal measured by these different instruments to get it to, to sort of work out where it is on the sky. And so what they then do is they'll kind of produce a map of, um, of where, the, uh, where they think the, um, the object, you know, occurred on the sky. And so they send that out to everyone who, who sort of signs up for yep. these alerts. And so then, um, you know, uh, telescopes receive this, and then they can direct their their observations to to that region and, mm. and try and find uh, a, a, a visible light or a radio wave counterpart. Yeah, my, my understand that region's pretty wide, though, isn't it? Like they're not. It's yeah, not very it's well. This is one of the one of the big yeah. problems is um, the typical uh, regions. You know, what we call these the error regions or the localization yeah. region can be hundreds of square degrees. Right, and so. For reference, um, the moon, uh, you know, the size of the full yep. moon on the sky, it's about half a square degree across. <laughs> yeah. So about a, uh, sorry, half a degree across. And, right. and then the, if you work out your pi r squared, it's a fifth of a square degree. Okay? Right. So yeah. imagine four, 500 you know, four, of those. four or 500 yeah. the, of, of the size of the moon. It's, it's an enormous somewhere patch in of sky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they give you a call and say, somewhere in there, point, yeah. your, point your super sophisticated telescope somewhere in there and... Let us know when you see something. So, so you guys are building um, a series of telescopes now to sort of be in the middle of these two pieces, aren't you? Like, That's there's right. the obviously there's gravitational wave detection, but then there's the very large, substantial telescopes we have around the world. But somewhere in the middle, there is a decision as to where to get those big telescopes to point, and that's where you guys come in. Uh- Pretty much. I mean, one of the problems with the really the really big telescopes is they have a they have a small field of view, so mm. they can only image a very small region. So, if you want to follow up uh, one of these gravitational wave events, which have hundreds of square degree, you know, possible locations, yep. you, it, it you know you just it takes you forever to, yep. to tile, um, and so that's a real limitation. So, our telescope um, that that we've uh, designed and we've we've built uh, one already, and we're hoping to build another uh, uh, shortly. Um, is basically trying to uh, get a get a very wide field of view, right? So, right. simultaneously image uh, a, a much larger fraction of the sky to be able to cover these large error regions in a in a much shorter time. Right. And do you, do you have to compromise sort of resolution and, and ability to see very distant objects to do that, or or is a- it a special absolutely. design to offset that? Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, basically, the trade off is, is is field of view. You know, the the, the amount of sky you can cover simultaneously. And the depth, which is yep. the, how faint you can go. So when when uh, my colleagues at Warwick University came up with this design, um, you know there was there was this question of depth, and we'd never detected one of these objects before, so mm. we didn't know how faint they would be. 
but we you know we made a guess at it. Scientists are, are well trained at guessing, yep. um, and and luckily we we got it right. So we we aim to get down to um, what we call in the astronomical uh, terminology about twentieth magnitude, which is enormously faint stars yeah, by, by any faint. normal yeah. normal standards. Um, but you know for a, for a big astronomical telescope with a ten meter diameter you know they can get down to 27 or 28 so and this is a logarithmic scale so yeah. you know we're not we're not going super deep but the combination of that that depth um, that we've chosen and the wide field makes us you know we argue uh, to be to be optimal for for detecting these kind of that's events amazing. Yeah. and just for reference folks uh, dr shane has a telescope at home that he's pretty proud of that gets down to about m5 <laughs> <laughs> um at a stretch so uh, that's 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 incredibly dim i mean that's yep. uh and in terms of the the sort of information you're trying to gather i mean i know there's an element of just being able to identify what it was i suppose that caused the problem but how much information will, will you be able to get on on these sorts of objects that are causing the gravitational waves we're detecting yeah there's a huge amount of information i mean with with just the gravitational waves alone you you sort of know you know this huge volume of space you don't know where the object was mm. but once we can pinpoint a location uh we can find you know where it is on the sky there might be a galaxy that's... Ho- I mean, there's bound to be a galaxy that's hosting that object. Yep. So we can learn things about the galaxy. We can make measurements of the galaxy. But we can follow up the, the object uh, in, you know, with every telescope on Earth. And, and this is what happened in 2017 when we detected the first such event. I think we had 70 different uh, professional astronomy you know, facilities that were following this up. And not just in radio, not just in optical, X-rays, gamma rays, uh, you know, people were looking for neutrinos from this event. You name it. It was being pointed at this event, so uh, I, I think I, I believe it's the most observed astronomical event in history. Wow! Um, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, you know, it, it was it was just so enormously exciting. Um, everyone with a telescope, you know, immediately sort of went out and and. Uh, looked at it yeah i think that's the thing that we forget isn't it that early warning system that gravitational wave astronomy essentially gives us that that says to everyone look something really extraordinary is happening in that region of the sky and it's going to evolve um over over time because we're we're not talking about an event that's just one off here like i mean when these when these things happen there is there are consequences aren't there over sometimes a protracted period of time well, well, it is a one-off, but it also produces a, a you know a, some sort of remnant that, yeah. that goes on. And um, in the case of the, the the 2017 event, this was a pair of neutron stars, which are you know the the leftovers from a, the the evolution of a middle medium-sized star. And so they were orbiting each other, and they collided just like uh, the two black holes did. Yep. But the difference is, you know, neutron stars are made of stuff. Black right. holes, we don't know what they're made of, and so. When the neutron stars collided, you had all this stuff being thrown off and producing, you know, radioactive uh, elements. Um, and in particular, we, we think that these kind of events are uh, key in producing uh, part of the periodic table, which we call lanthanides. Um, these occur on the Earth and, you know, everywhere in the solar system. Mm. And we, we're not sort of 100% sure where they all come from. Right. Um, and, and perhaps the best example, and, and this was a lot in the press that we're talking about, was gold. And so we think that a lot of the gold that's on Earth, that you know, that's in, in our jewellery and everything else, actually comes from neutron star collisions, which hmm. is pretty amazing. Yeah, that's cool stuff when you think about it. Like, uh, you know, we, we take that stuff for granted, but it's quite a massive cosmic event that is required yep. to, to do this. Now, um, you said there's one, there's one telescope set already running in the UK, um, and as you came into the studio this morning, you mentioned to me that we're already pouring concrete here in Australia for number two. Tell us about that. Yep, so our, our first one was uh, on, it's on La Palma in the Canary Islands, which is a, one, of the, one of the best observing sites uh, that we have in, in the world. Um, and we, we sort of produced a prototype there from 2017, and we've been gradually working on that and, and improving it and expanding it. Um, and now we've just started uh, literally last week, you know, digging the hole for a new one on Siding Spring Observatory uh, just near Coonabarabran in New South Wales, yep. and that's our, our best optical observing site in Australia. Yeah. And so the advantage there is we get, um, you know, these, these two telescopes are almost on opposite sides of the Earth, so we get much better coverage of the sky and also uh, much better sort of uh, time coverage, you know, throughout the, throughout the night. Yep. It's, it's it's interesting to me, I think sometimes, especially in Australia, we forget that when you look at Southern Hemisphere observing sites, there aren't that many that are as good as Australia. Yeah, well, one, one, of the, um, one of the exercises that we had to do when deciding where to put the telescope was to look for, you know, where is the best observing mm. site in Australia? And um, we, we looked around a lot, and there, supposedly there are some sites up in northwestern Australia which are better than Siding Spring. Right. You know, Siding Spring is where yep. all our, our largest <laughs> telescopes are. 
But uh, when we looked into it, you know, the, these these sites, they're at higher altitude and they have better weather. Um, you know, West yep. Australia has pretty good weather, n- n- typically. Um, but there's no infrastructure there at all. There's no roads, right. there's no power, and there's no internet. So it'd be a real challenge to develop those sites and put a new telescope there. So in contrast, at Sighting Spring, we've got the, the ANU staff. You know, they have lots of telescopes there already. They have great internet and, and power and roads mm. and everything else. So... The infrastructure, you know, is something you really need if you want to yeah. if you want to keep the costs down. Yeah, it's important stuff, and, and the fact that you're going to get a bucket load of uh, students going up there the, to what is already, you know, that site for for Australia. When when you're down there at Monash and you're trying to recruit PhDs and students into you, so that I mean, this has got to be your line there where you say, look, there's optical astronomy, that's fun. There's radio astronomy, that's fun. But you know, there's this new type of astronomy that's based on gravitational wave detection. That's where you want to be. Is that is that going to be the new recruitment line? Do you think, Duncan? Oh, definitely. You know, we're we're, we're sort of milking that as much as we can but but the trouble is you, you don't actually need to go to the telescope to, to mm. observe so you know this is designed to operate autonomously basically and once it receives the um you know the signal from LIGO it can go and slew itself and, and start observing those fields without any human interaction so yeah. we can you know we can operate it remotely which is less <laughs> less romantic than the uh, you know the version where we get to, to go up there but it's actually but a lot more practical I wouldn't worry about that the James Webb <laughs> telescope works the same way and yeah. people are really excited so yeah. <laughs> I think it's still good Duncan, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today again. Uh, we'll have to get you in again before 15 years passes. I think hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll talk in the, the next few years. But it's, it's super exciting to see this new, new wave of astronomy coming through and the idea of knowing you know, what, you know, when, when to look at a certain part of the sky for something special as a result of what's going on is just phenomenal. So good luck with the ongoing work. And uh, guess the old when, the, um, when these telescopes in Australia are up and running and we'll, we'll maybe, um, you know, maybe do a live cross to the remote operation or something. <laughs> That'd be cool. great. Thanks, Thanks very so much. much. Folks, that's Associate Professor Duncan Galloway from the School of Physics and Astronomy at Monash University. We're going to take a short break for some station announcements, and when we come back, we'll be talking about aerosols. And I'm starting to get concerned about the CO2 levels in the studio here, Ray. It's at 8.40. Let's unpack that. With yeah. yeah, I'm not sure what it means. We'll find out yeah. very soon. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. Welcome back, folks. You're listening to Triple R Indeed, and uh, this is a science program. If you haven't worked that out yet, after all the gravity wave discussions we just had, you're in trouble. Anyway, in the studio now with us is an old uh, friend and colleague of mine, Associate Professor Robin Schofield from the University of Melbourne. Welcome back. It's lovely to be here, Shane. Thanks very much. I I think back to when I first met you and it was uh, doing a podcast at Melbourne Uni. Was I the first person to ever interview you on a radio talk? Uh, yeah, you were the one who really sat me down and told me to calm down. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's been sky's been a limit since then because you've done heaps of media with regards to air and back then I mean do you miss the days when all you spoke about was Antarctica and contamination from the northern hemisphere have I got that right am I remembering your work correctly uh, yeah so I we talked about mercury didn't we yeah we were teaching talking about that but I've always guess I've always been involved in um, different areas of the atmosphere um, and and close to where it has been policy relevant. So I come from mm. stratospheric ozone background and and am contributing now, actually, to um, the upcoming release of the ozone assessment. Right. Um, yep. So, yeah, all the time, you know, we're, CFCs are... are on the way out, HFCs are heading heading out too, mm. um, but we're still watching and still learning lessons there too. So. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It, I mean, I know you can't tell tell us much about the, that report, but um, how are we doing? Like just between you and me, we've no one else is listening with regards to CO <laughs> with the ozone. How are we how are we right? Going? So it, it's still like you know. Every year we will get an ozone hole over right. Antarctica. So yep. the southern hemisphere is more influenced than the northern hemisphere mm. by by emissions of um, these chlorofluorocarbons, which were used in refrigerants and foams, yep. etc. And so since the last report, you know, there, there was an um, incidence which showed that there were um, releases of CFCs which were unexpected. And right. so working out and tracking those down, though that that's all happened. That's all out in the out in the um, peer reviewed literature. Yeah. And um and and all the assessment does is look through the peer reviewed literature and and it's broken down into a number of chapters and towards the end you've got the the policy relevant stuff. So, you know, we're looking forward. Um, you know, geoengineering is always a part of that. Um, understanding what rockets 
will mm. do, etc. So all these things come into play. Yeah. And but we we expect the ozone hole to heal um, in in about uh, it's twenty fifty twenty sixty. Um, right. And um, we we also we're going to see. Uh, sorry, <laughs> lost my train of thought there. Um, but we will see other things come in that are important. So we've got climate right. change will actually cause a super recovery of oh, wow. the ozone hole. Yeah, well, that's not a good uh, it's a good thing out of a bad thing, but uh, something, I suppose. Yeah, yeah so um, unlike in the troposphere, in the stratosphere, we see uh, um, cooling temperatures mm. due to uh, greenhouse gas increases so that right. the ozone reactions, or the loss reactions, are temperature-dependent. Yeah, so interesting. Comes from that. Now, you, of course, uh, you know, since then have dived into, you know, apparently there's some pandemic going on, hadn't heard about it until just before the show but um air clean air is something that we we don't we haven't really talked about a lot before the last couple of years and all of a sudden it's you know talked about all the time but in terms of air conditions i mean where where do we see the problems like forgetting the the pandemic stuff for a second the viral stuff i mean where do we see problems i mean we're sitting in the studio now and you you've put one of these Aronet 4 sensors in here. It's totally freaking me out. Um, it has actually at least informed me as to why I always feel cold in the studio because when you first put it, it read like 18 degrees or something, it was a bit chilly. But, you know, it's it's popping a number on the screen now that says 859. I assume that's CO2 parts per million? Yep, that's right. So it, this is, a, yeah, just a, a, an, an infrared sensor for mm-hmm. carbon dioxide. Yep. yep. And and so what what is this telling me? Like, what does this mean? Uh, so... Yeah. Outside, obviously, yep. um, we know that the background's around four four twenty now, yeah, yeah. Um, and increasing. So, mm-hmm. uh, due to obviously anthropogenic emissions yep. of, of carbon, and um, and so, but inside, um, and when we breathe, so we breathe out each breath yep. thirty seven thousand parts per million, right. and so you know we've got a small, relatively constrained space here. Um, wouldn't uh, wouldn't yeah, want to guess small. how yep, many yep. cubic meters here, but um, it's fairly fairly small. And so you can imagine, with each breath, eight liters per minute, right. it will build up in here if there's no ventilation. Hold your breath, Ray. So is there? So I mean, it was like seven hundred when when we started. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you two were in here. When yeah. I first put it in here, it was 500. 500. Oh, oh yeah, oh, that's yeah, true, yeah. actually. Yeah, so that, yeah, yeah. We were yep. yammering on about news. Um, yep. Is there, but is there any, one thing, is there any policy of what an acceptable level is? I mean, I know from an OH&S standard in our labs, we might have CO2 sensors, but they go off at poisoning levels. Right. <laughs> um, so is there, but there's no, I mean, in, indoor air isn't terribly regulated. That's right. So it is the great unregulated. Okay. And, um, but, so building, building standards and design standards for buildings um, are designed for the use, obviously, and the ventilation to limit it to about 800 parts right. per million. Yep. And, and the, and 800 actually means, so, is basic rule of thumb is for every 400 over 400, you've got 1% of the air has been breathed out by someone else. Right. And so you can see that when it starts to get dangerous, 2,400 yep. is, is obviously 5% of yeah. rebreathed air. And we start to see cognitive effects above 1,000 and, um, and your ability to make strategic and... Right. Cognitive effects above a thousand. So I'm just going to say that all the listeners out there, by the end of the show, do not expect a lot. (laughs) So when we get silly at the end of the show, maybe maybe we know why. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're going to open the door more often, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Now, one of the things that's interesting is, and this is happening a lot at the moment, people having discussions about clean air and what that looks like in their workplaces, in in schools, in homes, and so forth. And so then we have, of course, what we have in the corner here at Triple R, which is a gigantic HEPA filter. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, is often people sort of connect these two, but the HEPA filter doesn't change CO2 levels at all. Well, so that's right. So the, so the CO2 filter here really is a proxy for airflow, isn't it? It's telling me sort of how much air is coming in and out of the room. That, that's right. So ventilation mm. is, is key. And the HEPA filter does not help with your ventilation issues. Mm. It's, a, it's the Band-Aid, which yep. is solving an issue 
um, due to those respiratory aerosols, and so that 1%, you know, or, yep. or so that we've got currently here, are hopefully being cleaned by that HEPA filter so that that's cut down, that yep. the risk in, in this sort of setting is lower. Mm. Um, Mm. And, and where so and you've been doing a lot of work with uh, the University of Melbourne with hospitals and so forth. I mean, where are you seeing the problems? Is it where you would expect them to be? I mean, I know like the, one one teacher said to me, you know, you always know when the kids have been in the class all day because the air is staler at the end of the day than it is at the start. And I think that's an obvious example of where you know the airflow conditions in many classrooms is is really poor given the number of people. But are you where are you seeing like the real sort of crunch points where it's as you say, when it's getting above 2,000. The, the thing is, you may not know. Um, for example, one of the worst places um, will be your car. Right. It's a really small volume, but you yep. might have the, the air conditioner on full noise, right? A lot of air coming past you. You will feel like you are safe mm. and you are not. Right, because that's recirculated, right? It's recirculated, yeah. Yeah. yes. So, so that can be a, a real issue. Yeah. Um, so that's why, you know, if you sent... Use a sensor, you can find these spots that are, yeah. you know, a little bit dead. Often it's where you expect um, lifts if they don't have, um, and, and mm. they usually don't have anything in there. Corridors, and we saw that in the hotel quarantines yeah. and hotels and etc. There's There's usually not um, a lot of airflow. Not of airflow. Yeah. But, you know, in hospitals, we have beautiful air. Um, coming in and things. So the airflow is not, not an issue. And so that's where the paths and where it's going and, and the, the way it makes it through the, yeah. the rooms becomes the threat there. So Now, um, in, in just a second, I want to uh, sort of go through something else. I'm going to give people just a moment to take a breather, uh, open up some windows. So we're just going to play some important station announcements. And we'll, oh, sorry, we'll just play some important station announcements and we'll be right back. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. All right, we're in the studio with Robin Schofield. We're talking about all things aerosols and contamination of the air that we breathe and so forth. Now, one of the things that I can't get my head around is why when I walk into, you know, supermarkets and various buildings and so forth, I'm still seeing these signs that say 1.5 metres. Is this, like, just total BS? Now, Robin, do we need to just, like paint over these things and, and, and move on with regards to aerosol transmission? Because we're not, you know, that, that, correct me if I'm wrong, but that is based on science that has now been refuted and is no longer accepted as, as the way to go because that, that only works for really big particles that would hit the ground within 1.5 metres when expelled by one person. Right. So there is some, um, I guess, some benefit from keeping your distance from other people. Mm. So your plume, your respiratory plume will yep. come out at, you know, your lungs are 100% relative humidity and 37 degrees. So right. that's the temperature that you're, you know, any wind coming over your or your mucous membranes and, and like the surface of the ocean, mm. shearing off and yep. causing these little respiratory particles. And, and that happens when you breathe, talk, yep. sing. Um, the more vibration, the more particles. Right. But that, that comes out as an undiluted plume from, from you. You're the source, and, um, and it will rise. Right. Um, and, and so if you're standing close to someone, you get a, a full dose of that, right? Yep. So there, there is that. And, and it's not so much that you're spitting on them, mm. uh, like and, mm. and a droplet, which is you know anything greater than 100 microns, and even that can stay a, a little bit airborne for a while. But... Um, it's all of that very small stuff. So right. it's usually um, below, like below five microns. Certainly, large. The more numbers are below one micron, mm, mm. and and they all stay in the in the air for hours, right? For a very long time. Yeah. So the one point five meters, then, like, because one of the things that I think this does when we put these signs everywhere now, and and look, this was different at the start of the pandemic. I realised we had a different understanding of what was going on. But now it kind of gives people this sense of, of safety where in reality, even if the person had been in that environment half an hour earlier, so forget the 1.5 metres, let's not talk about distance, let's talk about time. If a person with COVID was in that room half an hour earlier, there's still a decent chance that those aerosols are floating around, right? Right. So it depends, obviously, on that ventilation yeah. and, yep. and what other controls you may have in place to 
to ensure that mm. you're cutting down that that risk. Um, you know, a high ceiling, lofty place yep. is likely to be safer yep. than um, than somewhere where a low ceiling and narrow aisles, and you're having to squeeze past mm. people. So. so. I was trying to understand that. For, I was thinking about that for outside because on Friday night we went to the Botanic Garden Light Show. Mm. And it was a very cool evening, plus they have fog mm. there. So it was one of the rare times in Melbourne where you could see your breath. Mm. And so we're there, and my family looked at me funny because the moment we walked in, I said, No, guys, I think there's enough people here. I know we're outdoors, but we need to put masks on. Because you could see the plume coming out of people. And I'm like, All right, I, I know there's recirculation above. But it wasn't a windy night, and there were a lot of people close together, and I thought, maybe a mask isn't a terrible idea in this scenario. But outdoors, how much is the... It must depend on wind, but just because you have an open ceiling, how much does that reduce... How much does that increase the mixing or dilution? Right. Um, It's... It's the best we have, right? So, um, and certainly under windier conditions. So let's use traffic as a, as a fun example of this. Um, so as we're going into Melbourne, people might have noticed um, some brown, brown fog. The mm. smog that happens—that's yep. the nitrogen oxides—and and so um, on a cool morning, that will sit there, right? Yes. Yeah. And it'll sit there for a long time, and um, obviously this is also relevant for for our conversation today. Um, and so that is when you've got stagnant air, and and so the the three components to to good air quality are like you need like the ventilation. Um, And so the physical processes which cause it to distribute, you've got an emission source. So if you can can control those sources, you can improve your Mm. air quality. And and the third component is is sometimes they undergo chemical reactions. Right. And for for the nitrogen oxides, those go on to form ozone later. So so that's all happening. And, And so to answer your question, it certainly can sit there outside, no problem. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, we, we all, I, I would hope that we've all sort of developed a bit of an instinct of this. I mean, I, I, I've, I've had various versions of this in my head over the years trying to say, get, get across to people like when they're at risk. And I think even things like if I can smell your perfume, mm-hmm. you know, um, then I can smell your COVID, you know. And I think this is not, a, not an inappropriate way of talking about it because, you know, obviously the aerosols that come off perfumes are, are very, you know, they, they're long lasting. They can be in the room for ages. The VO, the VOCs, so they're usually a, a fragrance gas. Yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. Um, and and so your mask will mitigate against mm. the the respiratory aerosols, but yeah. you can still smell things like so yeah. you still smell the smoke and yeah. and that sort of thing through and perfumes. But that's right. When you walk into a room, you like as a person, like a ship, you've got a bow wake ahead of you. So mm. air's a fluid, right? And and you carry four cubic meters with you. Right, yeah, and cool. and that propagates ahead of you, and yep. so you might sense someone's in the room, right, and and um, before you, before they make any noise or something, yep. because they've their air has come ahead of them. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I remember I was walking down the street with my wife at one point, uh, maybe six months ago. And, you know, there was there was two gentlemen walking on the other side of the street. And there was a standard sort of, you know, maybe 10-metre distance across the street. And we could smell them smoking. Mm-hmm. Oh, and yeah, thought, no problem. You know, it's amazing. It wasn't a very windy day, but, you know, those 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 various particles were travelling quite fast. So, I mean, this, this brings me to sort of, you know, our mitigation strategy. So, obviously, you know, airing out our buildings and having fil- proper filtration helps. But, you know, that airflow is obviously the biggest thing. But the, the, the mask wearing, there seems to be such a... A hesitation now towards this, but this is this is simply the the go to, right? I mean, this is that's right. I I, I wish it was back at twenty nineteen, right? And mm. we could you know uninhibited dance in spaces yep. that were really small and low ceilings and <laughs> yeah. crammed. But I guess the reality is we need to to rethink that, yep. and and um, and we need to. You know, wearing a mask isn't a huge imposition. What people, the people, when people find a problem with masks is generally because they haven't found one that works for them, right? right? Yeah. Like, I, I like these KF94s. 94s. Yep, yep, they're great. It, it the works same. for my face. Yep. And and um, if I'm going on an aeroplane, which is another very risky setting, yep. I will be wearing those, you know... Um, P2 or the, yeah, the 3M the, auras or something. Yeah, yeah. The, the very, yeah. the aura. Um, what are they, the... 
Um, yeah, the, the three 3M auras, I think, the the ones that are quite good. And, yeah, yeah they're definitely the N95s, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, when, when, we, when we wear those, I mean, one of the things that we still be, have to be mindful of is we still have a percentage chance of... Yeah, so there's 5%. Not right. that's still coming through some, somewhere else, but you're cutting down your dose, right? Yeah, yeah. You're there, um, and, and and this is where I think people need to be mindful because when you have a, a limited exposure, so you know, I I know not far from my house, there's an IGA. I go in there sometimes for a couple of items, you know, and I'll wear my mask in there out of respect for the the staff behind the counter who are getting repeatedly exposed. But I know that my exposure there to others is really limited in time, mm. so I feel pretty comfortable you know, with the mask's capabilities there. If I was uh, seeing a three-hour movie in a theatre, I'd start to be worrying if the ventilation wasn't very good. So usually in the theatres, they, they've, yeah. they've got yeah. good ventilation, yeah. Um, it's when you're sitting on the ground in an aeroplane um, right. that yeah. I am most concerned. Right. And I, I've had this on ships and, and all sorts of things in the galley, and it took me, and I plastered, put it on the wall. This is, I was pointing, this is the sensor. And I had it on the wall in the galley because that's where we're eating and conjugating. And, um, and it took me a while to realise that other people would really engage with it and ensured that the windows were all open. And because so, I was like, it's really not it's risky not in bad. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's great. Look, and we're, uh, look, we're almost out of time, Robin, so we're going to have to have to go. But uh, I'm just noticing now we've just cracked 900. So intellectually, I'm still okay. Um, yeah. In about, if the show had gone for another 10 minutes, people would definitely see, see a drop off in performance. But look, it is great to have you in. I think the awareness of clean air, and this is something that should be enshrined in policy and, and, and legally for everyone, just like we have it for clean water. Um, you know, our ability to access clean air is very important to our lives. So keep up all your amazing work. I know you've had a, a huge impact on hospitals and schools and, also, and the University of Melbourne and other, other areas as well with regards to understanding clear, clean air. We will get you in again. Um, great to talk to you and good luck with the work. Thanks very much for having me. Folks, that was Associate Professor Robin Schofield from the University of Melbourne, one of the uh, friends of the show and one of the best people with regards to understanding air and air quality that I've ever met. Um, might be the only person I've ever met. No, I've met heaps. Um, Robin's, Robin's great. Ray, good to have you in the studio. Good to see you too, Dr. Shane. Folks, we're going to hand over now to the team from Eat It. I believe uh, Matt Stebman and Cam are over there very excited about... Uh, being here today at Triple R, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic weekend and wear a mask and stay safe wherever you can. Uh, having recently had this virus, it's not as mild as you might think. It really sucked. So uh, take care of yourselves and thanks for listening to Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.